In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Many happy returns, blessed feast of uh, Hosanna Sunday. And in this day we celebrate the Lord Jesus entering into Jerusalem as a king. And the people and the children, when they uh, were celebrating the Lord's entry, they said, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna means, save we pray. And they're begging Him to save them. And they were celebrating, this is our Savior. But what were they thinking of in terms of saving them from who? To the Jews at the time, the salvation was something that was an earthly thing. So they were celebrating Him as the one who would come into Jerusalem to save them from the occupation of the Romans, to save them from this bondage that they were uh, in bondage to. Similarly, as Moses went into Egypt to free their forefathers and their ancestors from the bondage of the Egyptians at the time. And we say this is slavery. If you remember, the past two Sundays we've been speaking about freedom and how Christ came to give us this freedom that He gave to us freely. And He came to liberate us from the bonds of sin. Freedom, my beloved, is something that's offered to all humanity freely. Christ came and did the work through this coming week to give all of humanity this freedom. However, when we say that something is free, this doesn't mean that it didn't cost anything. You know, when you go somewhere and they say, you know, buy one, get one free, you didn't really get it free, right? You had to buy something to get it free, right? So as they say, there's nothing that's free. It was free to us because we didn't pay for it. But there is something that was paid for this. And this is what I like to meditate with you today is let us consider the cost of the freedom and salvation that Christ has given to us freely. Number one is the cost that it cost the Father. What was the price that the Father paid? If you remember in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, that what? He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So here saying here, God gave, the Father here, gave His Son to us the world. So He gave us the world. He gave, allowed His Son to enter into humanity, right? So this is something, a gift from the Father uh, to the world. He gave us His Son. And St. Paul continues and he says what? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things. So he said, he who didn't spare his son, this prized and, you know, beloved, uh, only begotten son. On this coming Covenant Thursday, the church will give us this image more clearly as we approach the cross. We'll read the readings that have to do with the offering of uh, Isaac, Abraham offering Isaac, his son, on the altar. And we read this verse, and perhaps those who aren't parents it really doesn't really hit home. But those who are parents, it means a little bit diff- something different. Listen to what he says. God told Abraham, He said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. Look what he says to him. He says, Take your son. And if you remember, this was the son that he's waited for so long. You know, he and Sarah were well, well advanced in age, right? 
um, in their 80s or 90s, very old, waiting for them. And then of course they had Ishmael or Abraham had Ishmael from Hagar before, but this wasn't the one of promise. But he was waiting for Isaac. And when Isaac came and he grew of age, uh, roughly in his 30s I, I think, um, he said, offer him up. What do you mean? The one whom you now told me is the one of the son of promise. You're now asking him to offer him as a sacrifice. So then what about your promise, God? What is he, what are you going to do with your promise? But Abraham, despite this, he listened. He obeyed. And he gave up his son. The same way where we can put ourselves in Abraham's shoes and think if God asked us to do something even remotely like this, what would we do? Could we do this? But look what the father did in giving up his son. Perhaps we can say of Isaac, he was human. But what about the limitless, the timeless, the perfect, the loving God is now giving his son for us uh, sinners and who have gone astray. And if we think about it, if we asked, if I asked you, what would you give in exchange for your life? What would you give in exchange for your life? We might think of some things, perhaps that we might give in exchange for our life. But I think the one perhaps we would all maybe agree on is the only thing I would give my life for is the life of my child. If somebody says, you or your child, I'll say, take me and leave my child. Right? Most of us would say this. But then what would happen if we said, okay, what would you give in exchange for the life of your child? And we think and we say there's nothing in the world that I would give in exchange for the life of my child. And this is exactly what the father did. Exactly what the father did. Nothing but he gave his son. But there are those who do give their children. But not for an earthly matter, but for a heavenly matter. If you look at the icon here of St. Rebecca, the one here on the side here, St. Rebecca was a great saint in this church and she had five children. She lived in the era of persecution. And because she was Christian, her and her family, they persecuted them and uh, ultimately they were all martyred. But instead of just simply martyring them all at the same time to allow Rebecca to maybe deny her faith, they began to martyr each of her children in front of her one by one. And she stayed fast and encouraged each one of their, their, their children to hold fast to the truth, hold fast to the faith. Until at the end, they martyred all of her children and she herself too was martyred. So she gave the life of her children for something that is eternal, not something that's temporal. That's why when I asked, I said, what would you give the life of your child for here? But when it comes to heaven, it might be different. <clears throat> If you remember in the lives and the, when they interviewed the parents of those 21 martyrs who were slaughtered in Libya on the beach, on the shores of Libya a couple of several years ago, um, the parents were saying, "We are unworthy that my child will be counted among one of the martyrs." So they are willing and happy to give their children for the sake of Christ, that they would witness to Him and for all generations. This is what it cost the father. What did it cost the son? It said, uh, St. Paul says, he, uh, he describes it, and he says in Philippians 2, Who being in the form of God, Christ, did not consider a robbery to be equal with God, because he is God. 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So it says, what did the Lord Jesus Christ do here? He says he emptied himself of his glory and honor. The one in whom the cherubim and the seraphim carry his throne. The ones whom everyone bows, those in heaven, those on earth, and those beneath the earth. Everyone bows to him. And now he's the one who's going to subject himself to his own creation. That turn their back on him and allow himself to endure all the sufferings of being human. All of this, all of this he paid for us. He did for us. He gave it for us. And the liturgy of Saint Gregory, Saint Gregory describes and he says, you the infinite being God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied yourself and took the form of a servant. Emptied himself. So he allowed the power of his divinity to be somewhat limited so he can endure the sufferings of humanity. So what did it cost him? It cost the Lord the humiliation of servitude. It cost him the bearing the sufferings of fallen humanity, being among them and seeing their fallen nature. It cost him, of course, the agony of the cross, which we will live through this coming week. And if you remember, the Lord wanted the people to kind of put the two together. When the Lord healed the paralytic man who was brought to him, and the Pharisees grumbled. So he asked them, which is easier to say, that your sins are forgiven, or to take up your bed and walk? So they thought to themselves, you know what? If we say, you know, uh, your sins are forgiven, then this is something very easy because it can just be said. You can, they don't see anything. But then he says, take up your bed and walk. He has to do a, perform a miracle. And then this is something very hard, and everyone can do this. So the Lord said, so that you may believe that I have the ability to forgive sins on earth, rise, take up your bed and walk. And he took up his bed and walked. But what did it cost the Lord for him to say, take up your bed and walk? Just a phrase, take up your bed and walk. Power came from his mouth and restored him as whole. But what did it cost the Lord to say, your sins are forgiven? It cost him the cross. So the steeper price for Christ was, your sins are forgiven. But they didn't realize that. But now we begin to put the two together, begin to realize that. That it cost him the agony of the cross. And not only that, but it cost him the burden of rejection. He loved the Jews so much. To the point where he was, you know, through them, he made all of the promises of the Old Testament. And he desired for all of them to believe in him and to be saved. But what does he do? He finds when he comes, there's a burden of rejection. The people whom I love and I'm coming to give my life for, now they want to kill me. Thus he weeps, he weeps over Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often wanted to gather your children un- together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. He said, I want to be like the mother who embraces you under my wings and saves you, but you are not willing. This is a burden. You know, those who want to help someone and they themselves don't want to be helped. If this person is somebody you love dearly, this is painful. This is painful. All of these things the Lord endured for our freedom and salvation. What did it cost the Holy Spirit? St. Paul describes the Holy Spirit and he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit ministers to us patiently. In the midst of all of our rebellion, our rejection, our uh, estrangement away from Him, our uh, arrogance, our rejection, all of these things, the, the Holy Spirit patiently is ministering to us. And over and over again sends us a message, repent and return back to the Lord. And we say, no, not now. I'm worried about money. I'm worried about my home. I'm worried about my education. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about all of these things. And he keeps sending us reminder. The Holy Spirit is grieved, but is still working in us day after day to bring us back. This is the cost the Holy Spirit is paying. So not only did our freedom cost the Holy Trinity... But there's also a cost that we must pay to preserve our freedom. So there's nothing we can do to earn our freedom, but to preserve our freedom is our responsibility. And what is it? Number one is holding on to the truth. Holding on to the truth of God as revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures and in the church. St. Paul says uh, in Romans 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So he's saying there's going to be a time, and there, I guess there's always been a time, where people have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And this is the key. Okay, if the people, if there are people around us who are suppressing the truth, then who is it to witness to the truth? Should be us who have the truth, right? The Lord said of Himself, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." However, when there's the, the oppression of truth. There's oppression. And oppression is built on the shoulders of greed and lies. Greed and lies. And um, at the time of the Pharisees, uh, the Lord rebuked them because of this. <clears throat> and he said to them, once they were having discussion, and they were saying to him, well, you know what? We are Abraham's children. This is our security. And, uh, and God is our father. So in response to them saying this, the Lord said what? He says, you are your father of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He, uh, he was a murderer and from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So it's very clear. He says, you want to believe the lie, therefore you make yourself a child of the devil. I came to declare the truth to you and you rejected the truth. Because the truth is life and the lie is death and separation from God. The only uh, true way to protect our freedom, my beloved, is in Christ and in the truth. So we must hold to the truth at all costs. We have to hold to the truth at all costs. And holding to the truth doesn't mean going on crusades and all of these things. It's just stating the truth. Stating what we believe when it counts. Even if it means that people will not like us, will make fun of us, will perhaps ostracize us, will cast us out, won't be our friends anymore. Even if it costs all of this. We must not allow ourselves to believe the lies. St. Paul, when he describes the end times in Second Thessalonians, he says what? The coming of the lawless one, which is towards the end, uh, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So they do like miracles and signs that are a bunch of lies. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, 
because they did not receive the love of the truth. They didn't have the love of the truth. If I don't have the love of the truth, then I will believe a lie. Very easily. Very easily. And he continues and says that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So he says at the end, if we insist on believing the lie, the Lord will leave us. And when he leaves us, there will be a strong delusion that will come upon us. So we will be deluded and we will delude the people around us as well. And again, if we think about it, perhaps we might consider the time that we're living in today. I think we can pray together, my beloved Psalm 121, or we can say with the the psalmist, Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Deliver my soul from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Let us hold fast to the truth at all costs. The second way in which we preserve our freedom is the engagement in spiritual warfare. Beloved, this is something that is uh, uh, just a fact of life. There's a spiritual battle that's going on for your soul, right? Against the enemy and against God and his army. Which one will we align ourselves with? And this is a personal struggle, something on a personal level. Um, St. Paul says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So he describes this spiritual warfare in, in a way that we understand it like in, in a battle with bloodshed, right? But he's referring here to the spiritual warfare. Meaning, yes, it will be uncomfortable. Yes, it will be hard. Yes, there will be times where it might be actually physically painful. And to this the Lord said, if your eye causes you to the sin, pluck it out. Why, Lord? Because it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than, uh, rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell. Of course, he's not speaking physically. But he's speaking here of the hardness of sometimes, or, or the measure in which we must take sometimes to um, fight against sin. Drastic times will sometimes call for drastic measures. The enemy is relentless, patient, and opportunistic. And if we ease our defense, he will be quick to overcome us. The last point I'll make in preserving our freedom, you said hold hold on to the truth and engage in the spiritual warfare. The last is consider the ultimate price. And I alluded to this a little bit earlier. We have an obligation to share and preserve this freedom uh, for, our, for ourselves and the coming generations to come. This is our obligation here and now. And just as you know, the previous generations did with us. And in, uh, in the U.S. here in America, we have uh, a freedom that is envied around the world. But this freedom did not come at at a cheap price. It came at a very steep price. And sometimes a very ugly price. How many of us have heard the Star Spangled Banner before? Show of hands. The Star Spangled Banner, the national anthem, the U.S. national anthem. Yeah. I've heard this a hundred thousand times. And it's nice and everything. But I never really understood what it meant. So I began to dig and to read what it meant. The song was composed after the War of 1812. So... There was already the battle of our freedom here in America, and we got our freedom. There were 13 colonies, I think, or 15 at the time. And then the British, again, occupied Canada, and they wanted to come and take back the land. 
So the story says that um, uh, so the Brits were coming in from the Atlantic, coming towards the shores of Baltimore. And they had already came from the south, and they already torched uh, the White House. They were uh, captured D.C., and they torched the White House. Uh, so they already occupied Washington, D.C. So the next major, or the, the only left major city in America, or the port, would be the ba- port of Baltimore. And in front of that port was Fort McHenry. And this fort, once they got this, then they can easily come and they could, you know, claim this land from Baltimore to Washington and the rest would fall very easily. So this was kind of like the last stronghold. So at the time, the Brits were coming with their navy and they finished Napoleon in the, and they captured him in Europe. So now they devoted all the resources to come to America. Um, and they lined up all their naval ships or a lot of their naval ships on the shore there of Baltimore. They couldn't come too close because there was already some rubbish in the water, so they couldn't come too close. But they had cannons. So at the time, the Brits had prisoners in their boats, American prisoners that were underneath their boats, and we had captured some British uh, prisoners. So they came, uh, <clears throat> and they, uh, the U.S. said, let's try to negotiate the release of these prisoners. So they elected this guy, his name is Francis Scott Key, who was a lawyer from Baltimore, and said, go on the boat of the Brits and negotiate with them one for one. <clears throat> so he went, and they took him to the boat there, and he said, let's negotiate. You give us one, and we'll give you one. So they said, okay, fine. So then the Francis Scott Key goes down, you know, in the bottom of the boat to tell the men, and he found the American prisoners were so many, and they were packed together like a can of sardines. He says, folks, today you guys are going to be free. We're going to uh, arrange an exchange. So they all said, great, wonderful. And they asked him, where's the flag? So on top of Mount McHenry, on the rampart, there was an American flag. And they said, it's there, and it's still standing. Okay. So then Francis he comes up, and then um, <clears throat> it says that uh, the admiral of the British Navy came and told them, you know, we're going to honor your, our agreement, one for one, but after tonight, it's going to be merely academic. And he said, what do you mean? He said, I just got orders to uh, aim all of our forces, all of the forces on the ships, towards Mount, uh, uh, Fort McHenry. And we need to destroy this fort by sunrise tomorrow. So he didn't know what to do. So he goes back down to the men and he tells them this is the situation. So the men began, you know, to pray. This time they're all very faithful Christians. Um, and when he came back up, he told the admiral, uh, and he echoed something that George Washington said. And he said, you know what makes us different than any other people is that what we, we live by what George Washington said. He says we will rather die on our feet then uh, before we live on our knees. So the whole time, they were praying down there. So then, of course, as the, uh, as the sun started to set, they began their barrage against Fort McHenry. And all of the cannons and guns that they had, hundreds of ships, I, guess, I think it's around 100 ships, I don't know how many, there were many ships. But they started barraging this fort and hitting it, hitting it. And after a few hours, the admiral would say, okay, where's the flag? They said, the flag is still standing. So then a couple of hours before sunrise, he told them, okay, I want all of the uh, cannons focused on that flag. It needs to come down. So boom, boom, the night was filled and the, you know, with all of this bright light from all of the bombs 
and all of the smoke made this reddish color. So as the sun began to rise, they found that there was this red smoke, red mist, and as it began to rise, they looked and the admiral says, where's the flag? And they said, it's still standing. So then the admiral goes down and reporting to the men, and the first thing they saw when they saw Francis Scott Key, it said, where's the flag? And they said, it's still standing. It's still there. So they finished all of their ammunition, and the flag was still there. So, you know, to make a long story short, they ended up, you know, going, and how was this flag standing amidst all of this? They found in Fort McHenry, there were women and children who were there, you know, for protection, and men, their husbands, right, and fathers. And they understood that this flag meant one thing. It's either now or never. So they went to this flag as, as it was being hit. The men, as it fell, the men came from underneath and began to hold the flag up. And as they were bombed and they died, more men came from underneath and they held that flag up. Time after time after time. So they found what was holding that flag up were the bodies of the men who died for the sake of their freedom. And this is what this country was built on. And actually, this is what our faith was built on. But rather than the flag, we have a cross. And before us came many, many martyrs up until this present day. Right? Our era of martyrdom wasn't over, you know, uh, so many years ago. But it's still today. We have the blood of our martyrs that built our church and our faith. What is our responsibility? We need to consider this ultimate price that was paid for our faith and our freedom. And are we willing to do the same for the next generation if the time comes? Something for us to consider. And as we go through this Passion Week, let us remember the Lord came entering into Jerusalem as a king to give us freedom. And we've enjoyed this freedom on the backs of those who shed their blood. What is my response today? Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.